This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today, we have with us Professor Sean Flynn, a historian from Dakota Wesleyan University, where he teaches courses on American history and Western civilization. He's the recipient of several awards for teaching and the author of four books, including the one we're going to discuss here today, his biography of Ben Rifle. He's a graduate of South Dakota State University, and he did his graduate work and earned his Ph.D. at Texas Tech University. Sean, thanks for coming in. Great to be here, Ben. We're uh, in discussion this book, Without Reservation, the biography of Ben Rifle, former congressman from South Dakota. It's worth noting that Sioux Falls' school district opened Ben Rifle Middle School this fall. What would you like... And maybe this is a way to kind of do a brief overview of Congressman Rifle's life. What should middle school students know about Ben Rifle? And can you sketch out a kind of a brief history of his life? Sure. Ben's primary concern, both as a civil servant, as a uh, official for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and later as a congressman, was Indian education. He took a real serious um, uh, concern with, with, he had a real serious concern with Indian education. And he believed that education was this transformative event because it had transformed his own life. And I think students in this Ben Rifle Middle School should know that uh, a good education, a solid education is a doorway to opportunities. And Ben uh, was born in poverty on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation and it was an education that transformed his life. So I think uh, it's fitting. I've always felt mm-hmm. it's most fitting for schools and school auditoriums um, to memorialize Ben. And there are a couple of uh, school auditoriums, school gymnasiums in the state of South Dakota, Todd County and mm-hmm. Sisseton. Both auditoriums or gymnasiums there are named after Ben, which I think is very fitting uh, mm-hmm. considering his his emphasis on education as a, as a congressman and a civil servant. So I think that's important for those students to know that this man was dedicated to education, put a lot of his energy as a congressman and civil servant into education. You know, it's interesting. He, he was born in a biracial home um, on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, a re- very remote corner, northwestern corner of the reservation near what is now Parmalee, South Dakota. It was mm-hmm. called Cutmeat back then. Okay. His father was German-American and had come to the reservation because his brother was an educator on the reservation. Okay. So William forms this relationship with uh, Ben's, Ben's mom, and Ben's mom was full-blooded Lakota, and Lucy Burning Breast was her name. And she was um, not very um, knowledgeable of, of the English language. Um, she never did speak English a lot except in private with people she was comfortable with. So he grew up in a home where he was speaking primarily, primarily Lakota. Mm. And he was surrounded by a mother and a grandmother who were teaching him the traditional ways. Um, at the same time, his mother was a proponent of education and believed that Ben's future would be dictated by by his um, acceptance of and his assimilation of uh, the white man's world. And she did not want him to be held back um, from exposure to that world. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, she's passing on to him what she thinks is important about his heritage. 
At the same time, she understands that her husband's culture is the pathway to the future. Nevertheless, you know, if you're growing up in South Dakota in the 1910s and you're living in a remote part of South Central South Dakota, your trajectory is probably toward becoming a farmer rancher. And, and it looked like at age 19, Ben was destined to be a farmer rancher for the uh-huh. rest of his life. His dad wanted to run a larger operation. He needed, he needed Ben's help. But some non-Indians on the reservation approached his parents and said, you know, you have this really bright young man, mm-hmm. and we think he should at least have the opportunity to finish his high school education. At age 19, he held only an eighth grade diploma. And that decision by his family to let him go to South Dakota State College and to finish his high school, uh, to to earn his high school diploma at a seasonal school. At that time, you could go to South Dakota State College if you were a farm boy over a period of four seasons and earn a high school diploma. Okay. And that decision was the most important transformative decision in Ben's life. Right. Because he arrives at South Dakota State College with this formula that his father gave him, you know. You're, gonna, you're about to join the white man's world. And what's, what the white man respects and expects of you is to be on time, to work hard, and to save your money, uh, and don't be so uh, wasteful of your money. And, and, and don't um, succumb to the giveaway culture mentality of your mother, because in the white man's uh-huh. world, that is not going to advance you. You need to, you need to use money as, as a tool to advance yourself. So he takes his dad's advice, goes off to school, does extremely well at South Dakota State College, and you know, goes, through, goes through high school in three instead of four years. He's then um, uh, enrolled, admitted into the um, undergraduate program at South Dakota State College and becomes a big man on campus. Okay. He's the, by the time he's a junior, he's the student body president. Okay. Imagine that. Wow. In the 1920s, an American Indian at a land-grant university being the student, student body, body president. president. Yeah. Uh, first of all, imagine an American Indian in that time even going to a flagship university yeah. or a land-grant university. American Indians in the Northern Plains went to boarding schools. You went right. to Haskell Institute down right. in Lawrence, Kansas, yeah. or someplace like that. And here he is making it, finding success and achievement in this white environment. Right. Um, becomes a, a, a ROTC cadet. Yeah. Um, he leads the Hobo Day Parade. He's yeah. voted the most representative senior. Yeah. He's extreme. He marries a Norwegian-American, Alice uh-huh. Johnson. And he, so you know, back to your original point about Ben Rifle Middle School, here's, how, here, here's what education can do for you. It can, right. regardless of where you come from, your background... Your, your socioeconomic condition, your race, whatever the case might be, uh, education is the doorway to success. Mm-hmm. So what's his first, first position out of college? What does he do when he... Um, it's the Great Depression, 1932. He graduates okay. in 1932. That's a rough year to graduate from Very college. Very rough year to yeah. <laughs> In terms of economic opportunity, right. professional opportunities, it's going to be pretty limited. Yeah. But... He does find a job for one year at Bishop Hare School on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, which was an Episcopalian school that was part vocational, part high school. And he serves as the superintendent of the dormitory. He co-teaches some course in agriculture. He's responsible for the livestock on the campus. But his goal is to work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay. He wants to get a civil service job, like a lot of the people he looked up to when he was growing up. Yeah. You know, he, he's the superintendent and some of the civil servants, not to mention the fact that he believed this was a way 
he could help his people right. through through this federal federal office. So in 1933, at the very moment that Franklin Roosevelt's administration is transforming, mm-hmm. revolutionizing would be a better word, right. Indian policy, he steps into this role okay. as an agent on the reservation. Okay. He's in effect an uh, agricultural extension agent. He's hired to be an agricultural extension agent for the Bureau. But um, because of his language skills, uh, the BIA sees that, no, we're not going to just limit him to this role as right. an agricultural extension agent. We are trying to revolutionize uh, Indian affairs by empowering tribes with their own forms of government yeah. and allowing tribes to determine who they want to elect, the constitution they want to write, the bylaws they want to write, right. if they want to incorporate themselves right. to take control. And to do that, um, during the what we call the Indian New Deal, the BIA had to convince the tribes that this new pathway, yeah. this uh, Western civilization style type government would be their way of empowering themselves politically and economically. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you explain that to Oglala leaders, political leaders who barely speak English or maybe don't speak English mm-hmm. and have never been introduced to these uh, Western concepts of constitutional government. Right. So Ben uh, takes the initiative to begin explaining this process in Lakota. And it's evident to his superiors in the BIA that the audiences that Ben talks to about the Indian Reorganization Act, as it's called, the right. reorganizing of Indian governments, yeah. is that those particular audiences are much better versed on the complexities of this transition okay. than other audiences. Okay. And bingo, he's noticed in Washington, D.C. Okay. Who is this young man who seems to right. have found this magic formula for explaining these concepts to people who don't speak English? Yeah. That puts him on John Collier's radar. John okay. Collier's the commissioner of Indian Affairs and arguably the most important commissioner of Indian Affairs in the 20th century. Right. Puts him on Collier's radar. And that is his pathway to advancement and promotion within the BIA civil service from that point. Okay. So that by the time World War II breaks out, it's not an exaggeration to say Ben is a rising star in the BIA because yeah. of his, his hard work ethic, his sensitivity to this difficult transition the tribes are going to go through where they have to kind of learn on the job in this civic laboratory right. where they're being exposed to Western law, West, Western legal traditions. Right. And yet at the same time, this gives them the power to negotiate with the state or with the federal government right. and allows them the power to take control of their lives. So he sees it as a very important moment and he believes his ability to um, explain it in, in their own mm-hmm. tongue is a great advantage sure. to the tribes. So let's step back in time a little bit or maybe have that same uh, or same questions with the context of what had U.S. policy been 1890s through the 1920s? Roosevelt comes into office and clearly there's a lot of consternation in Congress. There's investigations about various uh, everything from corruption to effectiveness on the reservations and so forth. And when FDR comes into office, this is one of the things that he wants to change, and it kind of gets swept up in the New Deal policies. But really, it's it's a fundamentally more profound than just the New Deal. Uh, I think maybe that's a bumper sticker he would like to use from Washington, but and by he, I mean FDR. But John Collier and so forth. So who's John Collier? 
a little bit more about his background, and uh, I, th- I find that intriguing about Ben Rifle's timing and all this as a kind of a sure um, walking onto the scene and lifting, making Collier's notions effective. That's that's a great question, a great context for a discussion. First, let's talk about the assimilation policy up to the 1920s when John Collier steps onto the, on the national scene yeah. as a defender of Indian rights. Um, really, from the Civil War forward, the formal policy of the United States government is to fully assimilate American Indians. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to attack their notion of communal land ownership, right. which makes the Dawes Act or the General Allotment Law of 1887 this critical juncture. Yep. Uh, crossroads in Indian policy history because that legislation privatizes Indian lands. In effect, the government says it's time for American Indians to understand that they will will embrace and, and be most effective positively by by American by American society and the American politic by um, owning their own property, becoming mm-hmm. private property owners. So you have this um, surveying of all reservation lands, okay. dividing them up into these 160 acre to 320 acre allotments, which which kind of echoes the Homestead Act. Itself. Exactly, yep. precisely. And then American Indians are allowed to choose the allotment they want. And that land is held in trust. But for 25 years, the government, in effect, protects that process, that, that uh, transition from communal ownership thinking to private ownership. Okay. And American Indians are encouraged to seek out their allotment. Um, and begin practicing agriculture, begin scratching the earth mm-hmm. or husbandry, begin raining, raising, raising cattle, whatever the case might be. Right. So that process has a lot of momentum in the 1880s and 1890s, and that's when you see the Indian land base shrink dramatically. Right. It's in, especially in the 1890s, you see the, because the ultimate end goal of the allotment process is once all the American Indians have selected their allotments, and all of them have, all these different Indians have selected these private lots. The rest of the reservation is going to be opened up to white ownership. Mm-hmm. And it will allow for these land rushes to occur. Right. And in South Dakota, you get a land rush into the old Rosebud Sioux Reservation in mm-hmm. 1904, uh, into the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1907. And of course, there are larger treaties that are beginning to create these corridors for uh, American, in, or for excuse me, European American settlement in South mm-hmm. Dakota. So he, along comes John Collier. He's going, wow, we're watching the disappearance of the Indian Indian land base. That that, that that's not right. These yeah. these tribes have no say in this. They have not been consulted in any right. of this process, and they're watching their land disappear. Moreover. His John Collier, a little. You asked me uh, to tell you a little bit about John Collier. Uh, Until his late thirties, he had never met an American Indian. (laughs) He's he's a New York City social worker who taught for a while in California, and he takes his vacation out to Taos, New Mexico, in the nineteen twenties. And he's introduced to the mystical or spiritual side of American Indian life, and their communal value system, Uh and their extended family societies. And as as a liberal leftist, you might say, he sees this as a way, as a illustration of what life could be like, or a depiction of what life should be like Mm -hmm. in the broader American fabric, that Americans have become too individualistic, Mm -hmm. too acquisitive, too Mm -hmm. materialistic, Mm -hmm. and that we weren't meant to live that way. 
He had socialist leanings, you might say. And yeah. He saw within the American Indian lifestyle a socialist lifestyle that he thought should be uh, adopted mm -hmm. by other Americans. So he begins speaking in defense of the American Indians, but at the same time, he's almost shaming uh, white right. culture for, for not right. following this same kind of uh, <clears throat> land-based idea, a communal-based idea. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, he's, he's, he's plucked by the um, Secretary of the Interior and by, by, by Roosevelt to be a, a perfect person to end this particular process. And okay. by the way, even before Roosevelt's elected, there's this movement in the in the broader uh, American nation about trying to end this this yeah. land loss that yeah. that th this is a destruction of a land base and it's being done in a way in which American Indians aren't being consulted in any way. Mm -hmm. So that broader conversation is going on anyway. Yeah, Collier isn't just concerned with land though. Collier's concerned with um, the protection of, of of Indian culture. And he believes that they should be able to retain their old um, forms of society, family life, uh, property rights, religious rights, um, and that all of these should be protected in a way where American Indians might be able to insulate themselves on reservations in a uh, a, a government or in, in a, a body politic of some kind mm -hmm. in which they can continue to practice these older ways. Mm -hmm. And um, he believes, Collier does, that it's the federal government's responsibility to protect that insulated environment on the reservations. Right. Ben mm -hmm. is watching this unfold, this, this, uh, this Collier policy after Collier becomes commissioner in 1933. And Ben likes the idea of securing the land base. I right. mean, he, he's just as sickened by the loss of Indian lands as, as Collier is. What he's concerned about is this idea of this permanent segregated society within the larger American society. Right. Because he is beginning to develop what we would call a melting pot philosophy about America that regardless of your racial background, whether you're Norwegian, German, Irish, Asian, Italian, whatever the case might be, um, your material well-being – is going to be enhanced. Your opportunities are going to be enhanced. Your, your, your professional well-being, your intellectual life will mm -hmm. be enhanced by adopting the larger American culture, mm -hmm. the, 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 what we call the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And he is concerned that this encouragement by Collier for American Indians to retain the old ways is going to stifle that evolution okay. where other um, other racial groups who have found success, you know, Italian Americans arrive not being able to speak the English language. Chinese Americans arrive, right. they can't speak the English language. They have to overcome this language barrier. They have to overcome this cultural barrier. They have to overcome stereotypes, prejudices. Mm -hmm. They have to fight their way, scratch their way and claw their way to a point where they can become independent, mm -hmm. financially independent, and, and to be able to determine their own, their own fate. But you have to do that within the larger American society. Yeah. And Ben's concern is that if we continue, if, if, if we have this long-term goal of segregating American Indians on reservations, they'll never reach that point of material well-being and political power mm -hmm. uh, that these other groups, other groups have attained. Um, so he 
will, will fight hard. He, mm -hmm. he, he believes that the Indian Reorganization Act and the development of Western-style governments and Western constitutions is a civic laboratory process where American Indians will be introduced to American legal system mm -hmm. and the American kind of uh, civic culture. But that is a temporary stage. Right. And that at some point you want to, as he did, leave the reservation yeah. now that you have this, these building blocks of how the American system works. Right. Get out there and choose to live the life you choose to live. Right. Um, as opposed to a life that's going to be um, rather limited. Your choices are going to be rather limited on the reservation, right. not to mention the fact that economically your life, your, your, your lifestyle is going to be severely limited right. as, as compared to other parts of the United States. Okay. One of the, you mentioned the reforms going on in the 1920s or the reaction and response to the land loss and so forth. Um, Coolidge signs the Indian Citizenship Act and... Rifle has a response to that. What what is that law, and what's Rifle's response to? It grants the, uh, grants citizenship, blanket citizenship, to American Indians, and allows them to vote okay. in, in in elections. And the response to Rifle to that is he, he, one of his heroes was Calvin Coolidge. He sees mm. Coolidge as a civil rights president. Mm -hmm who's wow. advanced the cause of American Indian civil rights okay. and recognized American Indians as political equals in the United States by granting them citizenship mm -hmm. and empowering them with the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And he, he claims later on in life, when we have no reason to, to, to question this claim, that mm -hmm. that's why he was a, he leaned Republican. He saw the Republican Party, well, first and foremost, it, one of his two his two heroes of history was Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln were okay. those two historic figures that Ben Rifle had most respect for. So uh, Calvin Coolidge is following in the footsteps of Lincoln, who emancipates the slaves and right. extends political rights to uh, African Americans. Well, here Coolidge comes along, another Republican, right. and does the same thing for American Indians. So uh, as a civil servant, you can't flaunt your your political persuasion, your right. political preferences. There's the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act <laughs> controls your... Yes, another uh, federal law. Yeah. Right. You, you're and a good one. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yep. exactly. Civil servants are supposed to be objective in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he never does share that publicly, what his sure. political leanings are. Mm -hmm. But he claims later in life that from the time he was in... Uh, in his teens, from that point forward in his life, okay. he was a closet Republican, if okay. you will. Okay, so he's he's... A sharp young bureaucrat in, in the BIA and some folks start talking about running for Congress. Uh, yeah. Where does that come from? And in your research, did you chat with – how did you – I mean, that all occurred in 1960? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he runs for Congress in 1960. By then, by then he's a heavyweight. In okay. the BIA, you know, he's yeah. been a superintendent on two reservations. Okay. He's the area director in Aberdeen, and responsible yes. for BIA in administration in three states. states. Yeah. He's probably being groomed for commissioner of Indian Affairs. And in 1976, he will become commissioner of Indian Affairs. Yeah. His old friend, President Gerald Ford, and they knew each other well in Congress, mm -hmm. would nominate him for that position. So by 1960, he's a known quantity okay. in South Dakota. He's, he's a public speaker, very good public speaker. Um, 1958 was a bad, 1956 and 1958 were bad years for Republicans nationally and especially in the state of South Dakota. So in 1960, the, G the South Dakota GOP is licking its wounds and they're thinking, we have got to find some candidate 
who can fill this vacancy that George McGovern has created because George McGovern wants to challenge uh, Carl Munt for the U.S. Senate. Yes, okay. and we have got to run a candidate who can um, who can fill that fill that gap. Right. So these Brown County Republicans, he's uh, at this moment in 1960, rifle as the area director of the BIA in okay. Aberdeen. Okay. They're very impressed with his speaking skills and his yeah. knowledge of agriculture and yeah. things of that nature. So they approach him and ask him if he wants to run. And it's a long story. I mean, he right. hems and haws. His, parent, his, his wife is opposed to it. His daughter's opposed to it. There's this lot of consternation within the family, but he eventually agrees to run, okay. which is itself historic. I mean, it's right. the first time an American Indian in South Dakota has run for a congressional seat. Yeah. Plus, he's running as a Republican. And by now, there's been this this realignment among American Indians where since the 1950s, they were, you know, gravitating more towards the Democratic Party because of their frustration with Eisenhower era policy. Right. So the Indian Indian votes being lost to the Republican Party. Okay. Why would you run this Republican American Indian in a district, District 1, South Dakota is divided into two congressional districts at that time, District 1, East River, South Dakota, where there's only 4,500 American Indian votes. You yeah. know, what uh, One a GOP attorney said, quote, they'll never vote for an Indian, unquote, in reference to white voters. Yeah. So there's a lot of risk in running this American Indian. Yeah. But it's his background in agriculture. It's his understanding of small town South Dakota, okay, understanding sure. of Main Street, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. And of course... If he is elected, he could address some of these concerns that South Dakotans have about poverty on the reservation and the decline of institutions like institutions of education, healthcare, law enforcement, judicial institutions on the reservation. So he could be an advocate for South Dakota agriculture and South Dakota small businesses. But hey, if we elect him, he will also address this issue that's becoming a more prominent issue in South Dakota. So he agrees to do it, and the rest is history. Yeah. He wins the primary, which makes him a national figure. Okay. Newspapers around the country. Can't the, believe the, it. The wire, uh, journalists on the wire pick it up, AP, yeah. UPI, and hey, there's this Indian guy running as a Republican. Yeah. And then, of course, he, he beats Ray Fitzgerald, who's the Democratic candidate, in the general election. And uh, mm-hmm. Mr. So, Rifle goes to Washington. Yes, Mr. Rifle goes to Washington along with Mr. Kennedy, who who defeats Nixon in that year and so forth. And there you go. Talk a little bit about – it's interesting uh, you mentioned Eisenhower's agriculture policy and Eisenhower's Indian policy. What was so um, wrongheaded or unsuccessful about what Eisenhower called this uh, policy of termination? What What's being terminated? It's right. an awful term really looking back. It, it is. The, the, yeah. the, and the t- another phrase that was often used during that time is, quote, the federal government wants to get out of the Indian business, unquote. <laughs> it's a budget cutting time at the okay. end of World War in the end yeah. of World War II. American yeah. taxpayers want to stop paying high taxes. The economy's surging in the 1940s and 50s. Right. And there's this desire to, to shrink government. Right. The termination policy and that idea of termination actually emerges during the Truman administration. Okay. And there are uh, congressmen, civil servants, White House officials who believe maybe it's time to end this segregation and to mm-hmm. terminate the federal trustee responsibility for Indian tribes. Okay. By termination, we mean the federal government will, lo- will no longer be responsible for, for providing for the social welfare of American Indians, okay. their education, law enforcement, etc. Okay. And that these, and they're no longer, their, their lands will no longer be held in trust by the, the okay. federal government. The federal government wants to pull out of its responsibility 
for um, providing for American Indians. Okay. And to turn over those roles of education, healthcare, social welfare, et cetera, to state and local governments, which would okay. be true assimilation. American Indians then would be assimilated in the fabric of their state societies. Okay. And they would go to Indian students would go to public schools. American Indians okay. would would get their health care the way other Americans, uh, Americans got their health care. Yeah. The, the legal system, the law enforcement system that had been separate with on the okay. reservations would be in effect joined to. to so this is a, a an effort then to kind of do what Collier is trying to do in a way. In a way. And <laughs> and also then undo maybe the worst of what Collier was trying to do. You could you could look at it that way. Um, what what Ben Ben does not like the termination policy uh -huh. because he sees it as a violation of the of, of treaty rights. Okay, that the federal government yeah. had a responsibility to help American Indians meet that particular material standard of living mm -hmm. and a independence of sorts. And then at that point, their treaty responsibilities would end. And Ben's arguing, we're nowhere near that. <laughs> the federal government cannot... Not so fast. Yeah, yeah, the federal government cannot turn over those responsibilities to states who don't have the resources right. to provide, for instance, law enforcement on reservations or don't have the resources for, for education or health care especially. Right. And the burdens that would place on local governments and state governments is going to create a backlash. Right. And it did create a backlash across yeah. the United States. The state and local governments said, wait a minute. And the federal government has been providing for these for reservations. And you want us to pick up the, 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 the yeah. material. The cost of the all cost that goes of all somewhere. That. Exactly. If, if the feds aren't going to pay for it, it goes somewhere. So he, he's adamantly opposed to okay. that. So I, he arrives in Congress in January of, 1860, of 1961. Mm -hmm. um, Nixon is president. Uh, Kennedy man, is. Or Kennedy is president. Yeah, some people say had, yeah. had yeah. Mayor Daley counted the votes different, <laughs> Nixon would be president. Right. That's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so how does he approach the uh, – and then Nixon kind of through the course of – or Kennedy um, obviously uh, probably doesn't take up the mantles. So termination effort for that kind of fades away. It All does. Right. Termination, even by the late 1950s, was becoming a hard sell because mm -hmm. of the backlash from the state and local governments mm -hmm. saying, not so fast. Yeah, okay. And in, it, we like the spirit of termination idea. We, right. like the, we like the concept of American Indians becoming more acculturated and more assimilated and more absorbed within yeah. our state societies. Right. But so the, by the late 1950s, the federal government's realizing, okay, this probably isn't going to work. Yeah. Not to mention the fact the tribes themselves. I mean, let's not forget right. that the, the tribes have a vote in this. Right. And some tribes have been forced into this termination situation. Okay. And other tribes are standing up and going, no way. Yeah. And Kennedy is sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, he's, he's like any politician at that level. He's a consummate politician mm -hmm. in the sense that I might need Indian vote yeah. in some states yeah. in which elections are close. Right. Not to mention the fact that I do want to start nudging the federal government towards civil rights legislation. Yeah. So uh, the Kennedy philosophy, you might say, is, is sensitive to, to American Indians' um, rejection or, or renunciation of, of the termination policy. Yeah. And it, it eventually, ironically, again, it's the Republicans who officially repudiate and, and, and terminate the termination policy. Okay. It's President Nixon 
Okay. Who in and yes. some of your listeners might know this if, if they read enough biographies of Nixon that Nixon, a very important person in his life was his football coach. Um, at that small college in uh, California, he attended it. I can't Whittier. He Whittier attended college, Whittier College right. in, in in California, and his football coach was an American Indian oh. and had a lasting influence on him. Hmm. And Nixon himself believed that the way American Indians had been treated in his lifetime, and especially through the termination policy. I, and I, I I don't have any evidence for this, but. F- Nixon was Vice President Nixon during the Eisenhower administration. So he's witnessing termination from the front seat, from the Oval Office, so to speak. And I can't imagine he approved of it himself then. Now he has the power in 1970 to terminate termination. Okay. Okay. So in all that then, when when, um, Ben goes to Congress, uh, one of his big key issues is uh, compensating Crow Creek for the land loss from the dam that's being put in at uh, Fort Thompson. Is that correct? That is correct. So, and how does that bill and how does that process work for him? He kind of has a lot to steer through. And Right. He inherits the momentum of it, and it had yeah. been introduced before, but he was so supportive of it because uh, Ben, I think one of the most important parts of the book, and people have told me this, is the story of Pick's, how Pick Sloan plan Mm -hmm. impacted the Indians of the three affiliated tribes Mm -hmm. on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. Ben was the superintendent at that time. That's right, yeah. And Ben did not approve at all of the way the Corps of Engineers jammed that project down the throat of the three three affiliated tribes, how Congress jammed it down their throat, how Mm -hmm. the Truman administration did nothing to listen to the Indian side of the story in that. And it's, in my opinion, one of the black chapters of American history in the 20th century is the way that tribe, the three affiliated tribes are treated through that entire process. And those tribes would be? Uh, that The Mandan, the Arikara, and the Datsa okay. tribes. Okay. Uh, oh, in North Dakota. In North Dakota. Yeah. Yes, in North Dakota yeah. on the, uh, in the uh, Fort Berthold Reservation, which yeah. is uh, north of Garrison. And when that dam was built, it created that huge reservoir and flooded out the lowlands where mm-hmm. these, these people lived. And Ben arrives at that time. He's oh, wow. got to relocate these people, relocate their schools, relocate their cemeteries, you know, mm. go through this entire process. In fact, his doctoral dis- dissertation at Harvard is all about how are we going to relocate and how are we going to um, restore the uh, three affiliated tribes to their pre-flooding status. Okay. How, can we, how can we help them through this very difficult process? I might add, by the way, I think Ben Rifle, don't have any proof, but I think he's the first American Indian to receive a PhD from Harvard University. Okay. That requires more research, but I... Well, there's a little, there's a point of irony in that because I'll bring that up later. There's okay. another gentleman I want to talk about in, in contradistinction with Rifle. Yeah, so. but, but anyway, yeah, Ben, ben I, he comes into Congress and his responsibility was how can we... Fair, more fairly compensate the Crow Creek tribe mm-hmm. for the loss of lands. And uh, the idea was that the, 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 comp, the, the compensation that Congress had originally agreed to was far too low. And mm-hmm. Ben wanted to boost that. And of course, it's been boosted since then. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's very important work. The, the most important work uh, on Pick Sloan and its impact on Indian tribes is Damned Indians. Yes. And I can't think of the author right now, and I apologize if you're yeah. listening, sir. Uh, he, well, I can tell you, he actually reviewed the book. His name is Michael Lawson. Michael Lawson, Michael yes. Lawson. Did a, that, he is the, the best author on that. But right. Ben, ben 
felt it important to do the right thing. Justice needed to be served right. um, for that, for the loss of, of Indian lands. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's uh, skip ahead a little bit. So he leaves Congress then and um, what, what he does five terms. Correct? He takes a five-term pledge. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 1971, he leaves Congress okay. after serving five terms. Okay. Yep. Uh, and in the late 60s, as, as a part of the larger national civil rights movement, there's uh, Indians are participating in that in their own way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, American Indian movement is established and formed and uh, gets a lot of uh, media attention and so forth. And what does Ben think of AIM and the activist kind of? Was not at all a fan, not a fan. <laughs> of the American Indian movement. Uh-huh. No. He felt that momentum, there was momentum growing towards more acculturation and assimilation uh-huh. of American Indians and that they're modernizing of their reservations. They're, adopt, they're, they're adjusting to a more technological society, uh, had shown some progress. And he believes the American Indian movement, which is a separatist movement, you know, they, right. they, 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 they want to separate from American culture. Right. They see American culture as a threat to their traditional mm-hmm. or, or what the American Indian movement would, would define as traditional culture. Mm-hmm. And remember, a lot of these American Indian movement leaders, many of them have been raised in cities, raised in urban areas. They're right. coming to reservations. They're not members of, they're not bilingual. They have what you might call kind of a superficial notion in many cases about mm-hmm. tribal heritage, tribal culture, things of mm-hmm. that nature. Nevertheless, they have this kind of theatric, militant theatrics that, that, that attack, attracts a lot of media attention. Right. And, and Ben sees this as a, as a step backwards because the the, the message, their message to young people, the American Indian movement message to young people is reject middle class values, reject American cultures. Mm-hmm. We need to recover the Black Hills. We need to recover our land base and return to more traditional social institutions, political institutions, economic institutions. Mm-hmm. And, and Ben sees this as, as a path to nowhere, that mm-hmm. the, this will not enhance or improve the material well-being, the education, the health care the safety of American Indians. Mm-hmm. And we've come too far to take this step back. So he's he's adamantly opposed to what the American Indian movement believes in, and he knows they're opposed to him. You know, they yeah. see him as a, an Apple Indian. You know, red on the outside, yeah. white on the inside. Yeah. Someone who's renounced his his heritage or renounced his culture mm-hmm. and wants to make white middle class Amer- Americans out of out of Native Americans which is part of a larger 60s movement anyway. It's anti-conformist. It's non-conformist. Yeah. It's a yeah. rejection of the 1950s conformity. And it's uh, young people don't trust the establishment. They don't right. trust their parents. They don't right. trust their parents' value system. So the larger American Indian civil rights movement is that part of that consciousness mm-hmm. about rejecting the establishment, down with the establishment, as the term was used in the 60s. Yeah. That, that, that's there. So he's... Yeah, he, he's very concerned uh, with with the long term impact of that American Indian movement is going to have. Personally, he realizes this is going to push him off the stage; that, that no one's going to listen oh, to. Oh, so him. he sees that kind of happening with the stance he's taking: is that I, I'm going to become less effectual in my work here. Absolutely, absolutely, it's going to make his voice muted, mm-hmm. and it, it, there's nothing. 
you know, dramatic or about about the about his particular pathway to right. to material well being. And he's basically saying he's basically saying conforming is very important. All Americans must conform. Ben refused to refer to himself as an American Indian or a Native American. Okay. He referred to himself as an Indian dash American, a hyphenated American. Now we couldn't use that term anymore because. Yeah. Uh, uh, immigrants from India would refer to themselves as Indian Americans. But in the 1960s, he said, I am an Indian American in the same way that a Norwegian American is an American, that a German American yeah. is an American. Right. He wanted American Indians to adopt more of this melting pot attitude that right. you can retain your language, you can retain your customs, the food, clothing, right. your heritage, your love of your history, as any other European American history group would do. But in order to live a life is successful, a life of achievement, a life of material well-being to avoid the poverty and the crime and the drugs and the alcohol and all these kinds of things. You have to, all Americans, right. not just American Indians, all Americans have to conform to a degree. Yeah. Uh, the American Indian movement was rejecting conformity yeah. um, and calling for a separation of American Indians from that lifestyle and a return to a more traditional lifestyle. Okay. And their heroes were the elders on the reservations who were more traditional elders, whereas Ben always said our heroes should be the most educated people on the reservation. Okay. You know, who, who are those people who have the technical skills the, 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 that can articulate um, the, the direction the tribe wants to go and yeah. are good political leaders? Those should be our heroes. Right. So who is Vine Deloria Jr. and how does he kind of... Yeah, Vine Deloria Jr. was a very important voice of American Indian... A very important American Indian voice. He'd written a book called Custer Died for Your Sins, uh, a, a, an American Indian Manifesto, I believe is the subtitle, mm -hmm. in which he points out a lot of the things that American Indian movement leaders are pointing out. That mm -hmm. you know, it, It's an attack on the white system. It's an attack on what the white system did to American Indians mm -hmm. and how American Indians can resist this and survive and outlast the white race mm -hmm. if, they, if they stick to their spiritual values and their and their communitarian values and their political values they can they can survive this onslaught and you know ben so i i i don't recall reading anything about ben responding to vine deloria jr mm. i can i can guess that he would he would he would say something like to the to the effect of these this this focus this obsession with the indian as a victim which is becoming kind of the what Indian American Indian leaders seem to want to emphasize, mm -hmm. the American Indian's a victim. Mm -hmm. He says, we've got to end that. You know, yeah. American Indians should be agents of change yeah. and, and independent and choose their own, their own course of action, whatever that course is, whatever, whatever right. that may be. Um, that, I, that's why I think books about Ben or about people like Ben. I, I made a short list yesterday as we were, as I was preparing for this and thinking mm -hmm. about American Indians, for instance, like John Harrington, uh, Ameri the first American Indian into outer space. Mm. Uh, Graham Greene, the actor who plays roles that are American Indian pro roles, but he doesn't play American Indian roles as well. Right. Ben Nighthorse Campbell, right. uh, Billy Mills, right. um, Oscar Howe, the uh, you know, Sam Bradford, Jim Plunkett, the quarterbacks for oh, the Minnesota right. Vikings. And, and the, I mean, why aren't more stories told about them? You know, mm -hmm. why, why are we, it, it seems to me that 
American Indian studies, in a way, has kind of narrowed itself through the years. And unless you're writing about the Indian wars and Indians as victims mm -hmm. of the 19th century assimilation policy mm -hmm. and, 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 and the uh, poverty and destitution on reservations, or you're writing these kinds of in, angry Indian manifestos of, of kinds, that, that, that seems to be how the field's kind of narrowed. Unless you're playing in that kind of paradigm and you're writing yeah. in that kind of paradigm, you're not considered uh, uh, publishable. or right. Whereas there's a lot of really good stories about, quote unquote, acculturated American Indians who, who've succeeded. Yeah. My father's a perfect example. You know, right. His call sign as a Marine Corps aviator was chief. <laughs> that would never go over today. The, 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 right. The, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would say, no, we're not going to allow... No, you can't have You can't that. say that. Yeah. But he was a very proud Sakanju Lakota, member okay. of the Rosebud Sioux tribe. Right. Um, and uh, extremely proud of his, his American Indian heritage. Right. You know, there are lots of really good stories out there about of American Indians like Ben Rifle. Mm -hmm. And I think Ben is trying to get that message across in the 60s and 70s during right. retirement that, hey, you don't have to be considered a victim. Mm -hmm. Why not be considered a change agent, right. an agent of change. Well, so, in his own way, Vine Deloria Jr. was that. He right? was. A very well-educated man. Extremely well. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, had seminary degrees and doctorate in anthropology, I think. His, and his son today teaches at Harvard. Absolutely. Philip Deloria has written absolutely. great books about Indian culture that uh, I've read and, and enjoyed. And um, Absolutely. So, yeah, Philip would be an example of kind of what Ben was advocating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, those are, that's the kind of high level debate and discussion about American Indian affairs that I, th yeah. American Indian studies that, you know, we need to have. Yeah. And I think the publishing industry needs to be a little bit more open to mm -hmm. stories about Ben and people like Ben yeah. who did not reject American Indian, or excuse me, Euro-American culture. Right. Did not see it as the enemy. Yeah. He did not see European-American um, political institutions or economic philosophies as necessarily detrimental to American Indian life. Mm -hmm. uh, toward the end of your book, you, talk, you bring up a theme that Ben brought up uh, that a recent book about the Lakota uh, speaks of. And I'm talking about Pekka Hamelina's book, The Lakota, Lakota America. Um, where he talks about the Lakota tribe as being very successful in managing change that's happening to them and coming out on top. And Ben seems to have this same kind of thing. We used to live in the forests of Minnesota, and the conditions were such that we had to, let, we had to leave. And this would have been in the early 1700s. We did so, and uh, we became the, the masters of the Great Plains. Um, and now conditions are changing around us and we can still become the masters. Uh, I, I thought that was exceedingly insightful for Ben Rifle in the 1950s and He's 60s. He's writing in the to, 1950s, yeah. yeah. He's talking about the adaptability. He, he believed the Lakota people were the most adaptable people in American history. Wow. Talk about someone who has tribal heritage or tribal right. uh, uh, pride. And, yeah. uh, and, he, and he talks about this migration from being a forest mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. living in different kinds of homes. And you would see on the Great Plains during the great yes. uh, renaissance of the, of, the, of the Lakota Sioux in the, in the 1820s, 30s, 50s, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, they're a different diet, a different different religious institutions because of the environment they're mm-hmm. living in, different social institutions, mm-hmm. and how they revolutionize their lives on the Great Plains and become uh, this great great nation, this great right. empire, right. the Lakota Empire that yeah, stretches from North Sam Dakota. Term, he uses that term, yeah, empire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All, it stretches from the Canadian border to Kansas, you know, yeah. and controls the, buff, the, the bison population to some degree yeah. in, that, in that whole area. Yeah. And Ben, in, in talking to both white audiences and, and American Indian audiences, he, he, that was a, a typical uh, storyline, a typical narrative he liked to share with the audience. So he would use that at, at, during the 1950s and 60s? Oh, in the 1950s. I have documented evidence of him yeah. writing using that same, okay. that same language about the adaptability of the American Indians and comparing uh, – describing – uh, very succinctly, this evolution from a woodlands tribe to a Plains Indians tribe, okay. and that now it's time in the 1950s to adjust to a new environment. That environment is technological. Yep. It's more modern. It's more urban. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're now surrounded by different forms of transportation and, and mm-hmm. different ways of communicating and mm-hmm. educational systems are different. Okay, we need to adapt to that okay. in order to be have the, mater- the material well-being. Who would question the material well-being of American Indian, uh, the Lakota Sioux, or, or all of the Sioux, the, the Teton Sioux, in, in the mid nineteenth century, they were the greatest example of Plains Indian wealth. Yeah. They were a wealthy, wealthy people in terms of resources. How we how they measured wealth in their own yeah. tribe. Sure. Uh, we need to return to that kind of material well-being. Well, you can't do that on our overpopulated reservations where there's high unemployment, there's no job opportunities, right. and all the consequences and circumstances that re- result from that. Right. Broken families, single-parent families, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, high drug use, alcohol use, crime, lethargy, apathy, uh, the, the whole social and political economic breakdown that one can argue is still continuing in many places on the Northern Plains. Let's not fool ourselves. Sure. It's, it's, it's a very difficult yeah. situation. I, I evidenced it, I, I witnessed it firsthand having worked on, a, a, in, in southeastern Montana, worked for nine years. My wife and I worked for nine years in an Indian school where 99.9% of the students, K-12, were American Indians. And mm-hmm. we were intimately exposed to Indian life in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and it has not improved in many conditions, in many right. ways. So, I think Ben was prophetic. He's yeah. going. If you're going to live behind these psychological barriers, these the, the the reservation boundaries kind of act like these psychological Berlin walls, where okay, this is your you're taught this is this is your future, this is your life, this is your value system, this is your economic, this is what you have to look forward to financially. It really limits the person's horizons. It, it crushes a person's horizons. Mm-hmm. And Ben said, you need to step off the reservation. You may, life may be difficult then. You may move to Rapid City and live in the worst part of Rapid City. At the same time, your children might be going to public schools Mm -hmm. with better teachers, Mm -hmm. better resources, being exposed shoulder to shoulder with white students who, who they will compete with. And it may take a generation or two within those urban situations Mm -hmm. for your offspring to reach the kind of financial security that whites have. But all immigrants went through that. I'm, yeah. I'm of Irish American heritage. Life was not good in the five points in, in, in the 1840s and 50s. <laughs> no. And, and no Irish need apply signs were still being displayed in the early 1900s. Yeah. And Ben's point was there's not a hyphenated American group 
that has not had to struggle, fight, scratch, and claw to reach a certain degree of financial independence mm-hmm. without, without having to go through this. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you remain on the reservation, fine. Ben would say the federal government's going to protect you and is going to provide for you because that is what the treaties say and we need to stick by those treaties. Mm-hmm. At the same time, ask yourself, is this the best thing for your children? Yeah. Is this the best thing for your grandchildren? Yeah. Hence the title of the book, Without Reservation. Um, uh, I've enjoyed the plan words of that, and uh, I think that that ends your 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 uh, text in your book that he was a man without reservation. And, Absolutely. And um, well, fascinating, uh, Amer- fascinating American, a fascinating South Dakotan, and a fascinating Sikandri. Uh, uh, thanks for the talk today, Sean. And, Thank you, uh, Ben. Appreciated having you on the show. We'd like to thank Sean Flynn for his wonderful book and him coming to the studio today. And as I said toward the beginning of the show, we have this recording, an undated recording, but nevertheless, uh, SDPB um, had this in their files. And uh, it strikes some of the same themes that Professor Flynn has discussed in the interview just now. Uh, But it does so in his own voice. And uh, we were so um, thrilled to be able to find this that we are uh, adding it on to the end. It lasts uh, about 23 minutes. And um, it's well worth the time. Thanks. Ben, let's start off by going back to the very beginning and uh, talking about where you were born and what that meant to your life coming from that area. Well, I was born on the Rosebud Indian Reservation near what is now Parmalee on a piece of land that was allotted to my mother. My father uh, came out here uh, to be with his brother, who was 20 years older than he, who was a day school teacher in the community called, at that time, Cutmeat. His wife was the housekeeper and he was the teacher. Later he left the teaching job, this John Rifle, and worked for a Jack Whipple. My father came out to visit with him. He also started working for Jack Whipple, who was also married into the tribe. My mother, who had gone to my uncle to school, wound up working for Jack Whipple, and that's where my father and mother got acquainted and married. And then they lived on a, then he built a house, a little log house on my mother's allotment of 160 acres. And uh, so I was born in a log cabin with a dirt roof. And uh, then uh, and she would belong to Episcopal Church. It was, became confirmed in the Episcopal Church, I think, when she was about 10 or 12 years old. The Bishop Hobart Hare was in the Bishop of South Dakota, I think, confirmed her and probably baptized her in the church. And so I, I grew up as an Episcopalian, and uh, my roots are really tied in with the Episcopal Church out there. The little chapel is still there where we all went to church with my mother and my grandmother also. And uh, then uh, uh, when we went to, later my father moved to Rosebud, South Dakota, to run a livery stable. I was about five years old. And my first Sunday school teacher was a Episcopal woman, um, uh, wife of the priest, Reverend Aaron B. Clark. His son is presently a, a priest in charge over at Huron. But his son after him was also the presiding uh, uh, priest on the uh, presiding presbyter, as they called him on the reservation. And uh, then after uh, 
I started at school then at Rosebud. I was about five years old. And then after that, uh, we went back out on our reservation. There were no schools, uh, public schools, so then I rode horseback to the same little cut-meat day school that my mother went to. And then uh, the something, some for some reason or other, they closed these schools and send the Indian children to boarding schools. So then uh, this Jack Whipple had, had his own family, plus his sons and daughters around there had children. And my father was like a son to him. And then there was a German neighbor, and there were no schools, so he decided that we'd have a school. And uh, bought, a, uh, bought a log cabin, he tore it down and put it back up as a, uh, on a hill nearby as a school uh, for all the kids. And then the German family couldn't speak English. John Hedick was the name. Couldn't speak, the children couldn't speak English, so they had to get a teacher that speak German and English. And so they got a Miss Peckham who could speak German. So that was where we started then on our regular grade school work there. And then later the uh, states began to put up county uh, public school buildings and we got a new public school building. And then they took the old schoolhouse, log cabin, and made it a teacherage. And uh, so I managed to get through the uh, sixth grade by the time I was uh, 16. Well, I guess the latter part of my fifth, beginning of my 16th year. So uh, then I finished the sixth grade, and uh, then the state law is you don't have to go to school if you uh, either 16 or finish the eighth grade. Well, I finished the sixth grade, and my father was not. Uh, excited about my going any further because I was the oldest of five sons. So then I uh, stayed out of school. Well, that fall, uh, eight, uh, my 16th year, this, we had a teacher uh, who had, she came to me as I was fixing fence near the pasture, near the school, and she uh, came down to, uh, to me and during recess time when we came back to school. She said she had only this six grades and she could give, teach me the seventh and eighth grades, get the South Dakota course of study, which she did. And uh, then I finished the, well, I got through the seventh requirements, I think, for the seventh grade, but not very good marks because the superintendent of school, his name was Jake Mesker, said uh, to the teacher, said, uh, well, we let Ben buy on this one, but see what he does with the eighth grade. So she worked with me through the January then until May and uh, got me through the eighth grade and I had to drive, ride horseback two miles to school to the town to take the eighth grade examination. And when the results were all out, the, uh, I got a copy of the report in my uh, office there. She said, it was written on there, it says, Ben, congratulations, you got the highest average in the county. So that was the way I finished the, sixth grade, the eighth grade. Well, yeah. After that, I went. Uh, was out nine, three years and came to Brookings to uh, the School of Agriculture. I see. What do you remember about those early years? Were those good years for you? Uh, easy time, or was it harder on the reservation? Uh, what was well, it? Well, uh, the thing is, uh, everybody was poor. Uh, you, no, nobody needed a car. Nobody needed a radio or a television. They weren't available. And so you just lived uh, as meagerly, but as well as uh, anybody else. You know, you didn't have anybody around you that had, uh, like today, it's pretty rough for a little a boy or a girl going up in the community where the parents are living in a log cabin and uh, no, uh, no running water and no electricity. And every other neighbor's got a colored television set and a disc outside and, uh, and 
running water and all of that, so we didn't feel like we were missing anything. And the fun we had was to begin, of course, in the neighborhood, even though we lived a mile or two apart, we'd get together on stick horses. And we had our horses, all stick horses named uh, whatever it seemed to be. A, the neighbor had a real good roping horse, well, that's what we'd call our stick horse. And, uh, and then we got together on horseback and, and uh, we had uh, uh, neighborhood parties and dances and square dances and all that. So it, uh, you didn't think of being poor, you know. Didn't have much, but you didn't, uh, didn't feel like you were deprived of anything. What happened when you came to the uh, ag school at Brookings then and uh, saw a different way of life? Did that change your attitude at all? or? No, I, I, uh, it didn't bother me at all. I came uh, with the idea. What I wanted to do, uh, I'd been re reading a lot of books. Uh, even though I was out of school after the, uh, when I was 16, this Jack Whipple, uh, uh, was, we called him Grandpa Jack, was a kind of a progressive uh, Irishman that didn't have much of an education, but he was a great reader. And uh, he uh, had a book called The Giants of the Republic. It was a leather-covered book. had uh, little biographies of uh, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Andrew Jackson, uh, uh, all, the, uh, all the different fields of preachers and, uh, and uh, uh, leaders of all, uh, in all walks of life. And <clears throat> get that book and, and read it through, and uh, then I'd take it back, and then I'd go back and get it, tie it in a flower sack on the back of the saddle. Finally, said Ben, he said, take it home and keep it. And uh, I wish now I knew where it was. But anyway, I was inspired by that thing. It was, uh, well, I thought if Abraham Lincoln lived in the cab log cabin and uh, could get along and become president, I ought to get somewhere. <laughs> And I remember Andrew, uh, not Andrew Jackson, well, Andrew Jackson, I read in there where the Indians had killed all of his family, and he was just a boy in 16 or 17, but that didn't deter him. He, uh, and then I remember uh, uh, Henry Clay riding uh, horseback, I think four or five miles with cornmeal, corn to have ground into grist for his family, and and I did that. Uh, and then uh, and, uh, General Grant, he got out of West Point, went back near Galena and uh, Illinois and how he cut logs in the, in the, along the river. I did the same thing, hooked, uh, would cut logs to, uh, to, for our fuel, uh, roll them up on a wagon with a, uh, on a chain and with the horses. And I thought they could do all that, I could do that too. So that was that. And uh, so that, uh, then I was, then I read a book, uh, I don't remember what, but it's this fella, had gone away to university and got a master's degree. Well, I didn't know a master's degree from a kindergarten certificate at the time. <laughs> well, he came back and he was going to be a great rancher. So I thought, well, by golly, that's what I think I'll do is go away and get a master's degree. Well, I didn't have any, I was, had a grade school and I was 19 years old and uh, out of school for three years. There was a teacher there, the same school, cut me day school, had opened it up again and there was same, another teacher there. And I was talking to him, and he said, well, he said, you don't need to go to college to get a uh, agricultural training. You can go down to Brookings. He said, there's a place there you can go through the winter. And that's how I got to go to Brookings. Well, I was 19 years old, but when I, uh, in our tribe, uh, through the government treaties, when you had a, we were allotted a piece of land when you were 19 uh, years of age, or 18 years of age. 
Well, you're allotted a piece of land if there was any land when you're born, and then when you become 18, you would get what was called Sioux benefits. That was, uh, well, my grandfather, Indian grandfather, got a yoke of oxen, some chickens, and uh, some tools, a, a rake, and a harrow, and some other things. Then, uh, then to farm with. Then when my mother uh, became of age, she was entitled to get what these Sioux benefits were. She got a, t a team of horses and a wagon and a rake and a harrow and a mower. And, and then when it came for time for me to get the Sioux benefits, they had commuted all this to cash. And the value of those items then was around $550. So I made my application when I was 18. And then, of course, the wheels of government grind so slowly. I was 19 before uh, I could get the money before it was finally uh, uh, given to me. Well, the Indian agency where our headquarters were, I happened to be working for a family that ran a store there. And they knew this superintendent of the reservation. And they were the ones that said, well, we'll help you get to school. And uh, so they went to the superintendent, Mr. James H. McGregor. And uh, he knew I had this money coming. So he got me in his car and took me down to Valentine, or Crookston, Nebraska, the bank, and we borrowed a hundred dollars. He signed the note, and that got me down to uh, to uh, Brookings. And uh, I got on the train for another friend of mine, took me to the train and in, in the pier. At that time, the platform out in front, I had a great big trunk. Indians said in those days, when they went away to school, they had to take a trunk, <laughs> whether they had anything in it or not. So I put the trunk on the platform and I got my ticket and I got on the train and I kept badgering a conductor all night long. I said, uh, I've got to get off at Brookings. And uh, so I can remember all those places. You go out at Hollibird and Harold and uh, clear on down to uh, Lee Heights. And finally, by the time I got to Brookings, I was asleep. <laughs> conductor came along and said, Hey, young man, you better get up. This is where you've been wanting to get off and we're here. You had your uh, first political experience in Brookings at SDSU right. back then. It was at a college yet, right? It was Student Association? Uh, yeah, it was. It was college. It was. Uh, it was. That. It was the college. Of course, Sutsco State College then. But then the School of Agriculture, of course, was the five-month uh, winter school for farm boys and girls that I wanted. To, that I went to because I was going to get my agricultural training that way. And then, uh, then. Uh, when I got, of course, I had this five hundred dollars uh, is coming, and then the, uh, the this Indian superintendent gave me the only the hundred dollars. That got me my train plane ticket got down and get it registered and so on. Of course, in those days, uh, the whole five months only cost two hundred dollars, uh, board room and tuition, all of that. So I, I got down. I remember uh, my father said, "Now uh, he said you better watch out for city slickers." He said. <laughs> Get into off in that town of Brookings, it's a big college town, because it's a small town. And he said, "Don't trust anybody, but the banker." He says, "If you want to know something, go up and see the banker. Go to the bank." Well, I got off the train. I headed for the bank because I didn't know where the college was. And uh, the first person I went with in the bank was uh, I don't know what he is now. The Horace Fishback was a, a banker, and uh, I think his son now runs the bank there in uh, Washington. And, um, Brookings. He told me where to go, so I walked on up to the college. And uh, when I got up there, I was about a week late, and the students were around there and looked. And I told them I wanted to come here to go to school, and they said, uh, 
you're late. You're late. You can't get in. Well, I went upstairs anyway and saw the principal. Oh, no, he said, we'll take you in. You're, you're all right. So I stayed on then. And uh, then, uh, then I had another lady who, uh, the, the superintendent's wife, and during while I was in college later, loaned me $100. And then I had another lady who uh, was really my surrogate mother. She was the... Uh, she was the one I was working with there. She and her husband had an Indian trader store called the Jordan Mercantile Company at Rosebud. So I worked for them uh, that fall. They were having a big Indian celebration. And they wanted someone who could help them in their store. And of course, I had finished the eighth grade and uh, they thought I could read and write and figure. So, and my father had worked for them before. So uh, she, uh, they had me come in and work for them. Well, she took quite an interest in me too and saw to it that I, uh, if I needed money, she would help me. Well, she loaned me a hundred dollars to help me later in college. But while I was in school, Aggie school, I was the oldest one in the school, so of uh, the in the Aggie school. So I worked really hard and uh, got good grades. In those days, you had uh, let's see, E, excellent, S, uh, S uh, was the next grade, and then M was medium, and then so I got uh, would get the E's, and so this. Uh, Lady, Mrs. Anderson, whenever I'd get an E, why she would give me a quarter for the E I got. And then she, every once in a while she'd send me a can of Ovaltine because she thought I might need to need that for my health. <laughs> so I finished the, in, the, the, in the Aggie school, uh, four-year school. I started out uh, expecting to be there four years. Well, I, having these fairly good grades the first two years, the principal, Paul J. Scarborough, we all adored him and called him Dad Scarborough. He, he was like a father at all. There was only about 200 of us in Aggie school. So he said, uh, Ben, at my end of my sophomore year, he said, if you do as good a work in school now as you did uh, back there uh, uh, the past two years, next year, we'll talk to President Pugsley uh, and see if we can't get you enrolled in the college, which, uh, which that's the way it turned out. And I later found out who told uh, Dr. Scarborough, from Professor Scarborough, why I should be promoted on was Frank Revel, who lives there in Brookings. Uh, he's, he was one of the teachers there. And uh, he said he's the one who went to Scarborough and told him he shouldn't keep me around there another year, so I got into college a year earlier. But I had to go into college as a, uh, as a special student because I didn't have, you see, five months uh, a year and then uh, only three, three winters, I didn't have enough whatever you call units, to be in to enter college. So that's why I was entered as a special. Well, I took the regular college courses. And uh, then I was as, as, an, as an Aggie, we called ourselves Aggie students. We were associated with the college students who were in agriculture. And I saw one of them around there where I had a little gold medal. Uh, two of them around there, three of them, I guess. And I said, what's the gold medal? I said, that's what you get if you have the highest grade in the agricultural division. So then I went to the dean of agriculture and I said, Dean Larson, I said, I'm taking all the courses in agriculture, the regular freshmen are. I said, if I get the highest grades, will I get that medal? He said, he was the dean. And he said, yeah, you will. He said, you will. So <laughs> I got that medal. And uh, then I went on and uh, stayed on in college and uh, but I didn't have my, all my necessary number of units from high school. And some of my uh, classmates wanted me to run for President Student Association. But I had to be a regular enrolled junior for that fall. 
So in uh, my uh, sophomore year, a spring of my uh, last of my sophomore year, I uh, went to the registrar, Dave Doner, who was also had been a Aggie school graduate. Asked him how many units I was lacking and where, and would he give me a list of them? So uh, he did, and uh, then I went to that summer school that year, and also went around and to the professors I'd had courses under, and they just signed little statements that I'd passed, and so I got got all the credit points I needed to be a regularly enrolled uh, uh, junior, and then when they had the election, why I was elected president of the student association. So I, uh, then I finished college there in 1932. And then, of course, tough times then. The Depression was on, the Dust Bowl. And then I got a job out at uh, that year out at uh, Mission, South Dakota, the Hare. It wasn't originally a Hare school for boys. And, uh, but it later became a dormitory at the time I went out there. And the Indian boys that attended the school went to uh, downtown admission to the high school and took their, and all the boys downtown came up to the Harris School for uh, their Smith Hughes training. The, the Episcopal Church paid for the professor, for the teacher of the Smith Hughes teacher, and all the kids took that. And in, and in turn, then the Indian kids went down to downtown to the regular school and did without having paid tuition. And I went out there then as a boys' advisor or handyman around the place and uh, got $50 a month in my board and room. Of course, I really did much better than a lot of students at the university, at the college, because I, as president of students, I got $50 a month while I was there too. And I got to work at the, I worked down at the hog barns, and I worked at the, uh, at the dairy, uh, milking cows. They used to tell people I had a real puller on, that's how I got out of there. And then I worked in the dairy on the chemistry experiment station. Uh, on, on, uh, we were <coughs> then concerned with the uh, what they call alkali poisoning of the cattle out, uh, horses out west, and they were doing some research trying to find out what it was. And so I you know, was working with them on that. And uh, we're about out of take. Yeah, we'll take a break here. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs>